Hey PGY2s, this week in Foundations we're going to cover Cardiology 3, which is pacemakers, other implantable devices, and heart failure. So we'll start with pacemakers. We'll review the coding system, which you probably won't find that useful, but just in case it comes up for testing purposes. The first letter corresponds to lead location, so either A for atrial, V for ventricular, or D for dual. The second letter corresponds to the chamber being sensed, which is again either A, V, or D. And the third letter corresponds to what type of response the pacemaker has to a sensed pulse. This can either be T for triggered, I for inhibited, or D for both. Your common indications for pacemaker implantation would be sinus node dysfunction, AV block, cardiac resynchronization therapy for heart failure, and other life-threatening arrhythmias such as Brugada, Long QT, WPW, and Hokum. When you have a patient that comes in with a known pacemaker, there are four pieces of information that you want to gather. First, figure out the type of pacemaker, the indication for why it was implanted, the date it was implanted, and when the last revision was. If the pacemaker was implanted in the last four to six weeks, there are certain types of complications that are more common. One being hemo or pneumothorax that may have been sustained during the procedure itself. There's also the potential for infection of the device or the leads that can lead to bacteremia and infective endocarditis. There's also a risk of venous thromboembolism sustained from the procedure. And finally, lead displacement can occur in the first four to six weeks, usually manifesting as bradycardia. Now we'll talk about some of the later complications of pacemakers. These can be divided into patients that come in with bradycardia and those that come in with tachycardia. In those that come in with bradycardia, there are four complications that you should consider. The first is non-capture, where the pacemaker sends an impulse, but there is no depolarization of the myocardium. On EKG, you will see a pacer spike that is not followed by a QRS complex. This is most commonly caused by lead dislodgement, electrolyte abnormalities, or a medical drug interaction. The second complication leading to bradycardia is failure to pace. This is when the pacemaker does not provide a stimulus to cause depolarization. This is usually secondary to oversensing, where electrical signals are inappropriately recognized as native cardiac activity, and pacing is inhibited, causing bradycardia. Failure to pace is usually caused by lead fracture, which can be seen in blunt trauma or lead dislodgement. The third complication leading to bradycardia is failure to sense. This is when the pacemaker doesn't recognize a depolarization, typically caused by, again, lead fracture or a new bundle branch block. And finally, battery depletion can obviously lead to bradycardia as the pacemaker fails to function properly. One way to determine whether bradycardia is due to battery depletion is to place a magnet over the generator. This causes the pacemaker to default to a preset asynchronous rate, which is usually faster than the bradycardia they come in with. However, if the battery is depleted, the magnet rate will be slower than the presentation rate, and you can conclude that this is likely due to battery depletion. Now we'll talk about pacemaker patients that come in with tachycardia, for which there are three types of considerations. The first is pacemaker-mediated tachycardia, which is basically where the pacemaker itself forms a reentry arrhythmia where it becomes part of the circuit and propagates an anterograde reentry tachycardia. Another cause of tachycardia in a pacemaker patient is called pacemaker driven tachycardia. 
This is where the pacemaker undersenses the intrinsic depolarization and fails to inhibit further pacemaker output, leading to overpacing. And the third cause of tachycardia in a pacemaker patient is runaway tachycardia. This one is of more concern as it can lead to rates of up to 2,000 beats per minute. This is usually caused by a low battery and will need to be treated by either magnet deactivation or replacement. Obviously, in your pacemaker patients, you're going to get an EKG. Most patients will have a left bundle branch block. In order to evaluate for possible new ischemic changes, you need to consider Scarbosa criteria. This consists of either concordant ST elevations with a positive QRS or concordant ST depressions with a negative QRS or markedly elevated discordant ST elevation. Aside from obtaining an EKG, you'll also want to obtain electrolytes, a chest x-ray, and a device interrogation to determine the cause of pacemaker malfunction. You may need to consider transcutaneously pacing if device failure is on top of your differential. And just to review, all patients with pacemakers receive standard ACLS. It is important to remember to not put the pacer pads over the device itself. Next, we'll talk about LVADS, or left ventricular assist device. This is a pump that is used in end-stage heart failure, either as a bridge to transplant or a destination therapy in those who are not transplant candidates. The structure of the device itself consists of a few components. The first is an outflow cannula that takes blood from the left ventricle and sends it to a pump that then delivers the blood to an inflow cannula in the ascending aorta, which then delivers blood to the rest of the body. The pump delivers blood at a continuous rate. Therefore, you will not be able to measure a blood pressure using conventional methods in these patients. The way to assess volume status is to measure the blood pressure by inflating a cuff and holding a Doppler probe on either the radial or brachial pulse. The pressure at which you hear the pulse on Doppler indicates the patient's mean arterial pressure. LVAD patients typically present with hypotension, and your job is to figure out why. The best approach is to take a systematic approach to evaluating the patient and the device. First, focus on your primary survey, IVO2 monitors, and call the LVAD coordinator. Second, try the ABCDE of LVAD assessment, A being auscultate for a hum that would indicate that the pump is functioning properly. If you do not hear a hum, this may indicate pump failure as the cause for your hypotension. B stands for battery. Make sure the battery is plugged in and that it is properly charged. You may need to plug the battery into the wall in order for the pump to fully function. C stands for controller. So check the alarms in the controller as these devices often indicate what the malfunction is. D stands for driveline, meaning that you should check the driveline for evidence of any infection, damage, or dislodgement. And finally, E stands for echocardiogram. Doing a bedside echo can help to differentiate where the hypotension may be coming from. If your bedside echo reveals a big right ventricle and a big left ventricle, you can assume that this may be due to pump failure or a pump thrombosis leading to obstruction of blood flow. If you suspect pump thrombosis, the patient should be started on anticoagulation and heparin drip immediately. If your bedside echo shows a big right ventricle but a small left ventricle, there are a few things you should think of. One being possible right ventricular heart failure. 
the possibility of a right ventricular acute MI, pulmonary hypertension, or a suction event. This is where the cannula in the left ventricle sucks onto the wall of the left ventricle, causing it to decrease in size and decrease cardiac output. And finally, if your echo shows a small right ventricle and a small left ventricle, then you should be concerned for causes of hypovolemia. One cause of hypovolemia to consider is bleeding, as most patients are on anticoagulation. The treatment, of course, is to replete with blood products and reverse the anticoagulation. Ventricular arrhythmias are another cause of hypovolemia in these patients, and they should be treated as usual with either amiodarone, lidocaine, or cardioversion slash defibrillation. If you suspect right ventricular heart failure as the cause of hypovolemia, you can consider ionotropic support with either dibutamine or milrinone. If your LVAD patient really starts to crash after you've gone through all of these steps and attempted troubleshooting all of the possible complications, you should only consider CPR when absolutely necessary, as this can cause damage to the VAD and dislodgement of the entire device itself. As far as disposition, you want to get these patients to the nearest LVAD center if you're not already at one and contact the LVAD coordinators as soon as possible. Next, we'll cover heart failure. This can present in two different ways depending on left ventricular versus right ventricular heart failure. Your left-sided heart failure typically presents with dyspnea, orthopnea, and decreased exercise tolerance. Your right-sided heart failure more often presents with peripheral edema and ascites. In your severe cases of acute pulmonary edema, your patient will present with dyspnea and respiratory distress. The workup includes chest x-ray, which will typically show cephalization of blood flow, sometimes curly beelines. Often you'll see pleural effusion and as well as cardiomegaly. You'll also want to get an EKG to look for possible causes of the onset of heart failure, being either arrhythmias or acute MI. Bedside point-of-care ultrasound can be useful in these patients. Lung ultrasound can often show beelines, which look like lung comets, indicating interstitial edema of the lungs. You can also do a point-of-care echo to evaluate for wall motion abnormalities or possible tamponade. In your laboratory evaluation, you'll want to get basic labs as well as a troponin and a BNP to evaluate for the severity of heart failure. Keep in mind that BNP can vary with age as well as renal function and liver function. Now for the management of acute heart failure. The main goals in pharmacologic management are to reduce preload, improve cardiac contractility, and reduce afterload. In your patient who is normal or hypertensive, you'll want to reach for nitroglycerin. In patients with acute pulmonary edema, you'll want to shoot for high-dose IV nitroglycerin drip. Your starting goal for an infusion is 1 microgram per kilogram per minute. So if you have a 100 kilogram patient, you'll want to start your infusion at 100 micrograms per minute, and you can titrate up to as high as 400 micrograms per minute. Last week, at Grand Rounds, Dr. Durr gave us two different regimens for achieving a loading dose as well as an infusion of nitroglycerin. The first option is to give two milligrams IV every three to five minutes and then start your continuous infusion at 100 micrograms per minute and titrate up. The other option is to give a bolus of 400 micrograms per minute times two minutes followed by a continuous dose at 100 micrograms per minute and titrating up.
Lasix is not typically necessary in the ED as it has a slow onset of action and is only necessary if the patient shows signs of fluid overload. Don't forget your respiratory support, which we typically opt for a non-invasive positive pressure ventilation with BiPAP. If your heart failure patient has low blood pressure, you'll want to consider ionotropes. The ones we typically reach for are dobutamine, dopamine, or levofed. Keep in mind that while these medications give the heart more squeeze, they also increase afterload, causing the heart to work harder against a higher pressure. You'll want to consider starting nitroglycerin after achieving a better blood pressure to reduce afterload and give the heart some rest. As far as disposition for these patients, indications for admission include an acute MI on EKG, pulmonary edema with severe respiratory distress, if the patient is hypoxic with O2 sats of less than 90%, if they have some other medical illness such as a pneumonia causing an exacerbation of their heart failure, or if they're hypotensive or present with syncope.